Welcome to Impacting Jamaica, where we shine the spotlight on the many but often ignored positive happenings, activities, projects, and investments at every level across every sector to inspire, motivate, and excite people everywhere. Impacting Jamaica is powered by the Philip and Christine Gore Family Foundation. My name is Keisha Hill and welcome to Impacting Jamaica. Leo Ginnan is founder and chairman of the Jamaica Diaspora Task Force Action Network, the largest professional network of Jamaica diaspora volunteers globally. Leo, thank you for joining us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much, uh, Keisha. It's been, been great and it's been nice talking to you. <laughs> Right, so for those of us who do not know, Gillian was born in Jamaica, St. Mary to be exact. Yes. He also spent some time in St. James and migrated to the United States in 1984. Leo, what was it like for you growing up in Jamaica back in the early days? Ah, I grew up in a, a little township called St. Mary back in the days in the 60s and early 70s. It was a banana district and the ships you know, used to come in at, at the ports and so forth. Uh, that went down in 1972. I grew up in what is called, what we term tenement yard. We had two buildings in our yard, one at the front, one at the back, and each building had three rooms, not bedrooms, but three rooms, three boxes, right? Okay. And in my building, there was my family with my sisters, as three sisters, and myself, and my mom and my dad, that makes six. Behind my family was another family with seven, including uh, mother and father, and then there was a, a family of two, husband and wife, on the other side. So six, six and seven, 13, 15 persons. 15 in one persons building. in one building. In one with three rooms, right? Oh, wow. And then at the back, and at the back now, there were three other rooms, and, and in that, there was a family with uh, seven children and wife and husband. That's nine in one room. Mm -hmm. And then the, behind that was a family with three kids, grandma and mother, that's six, and then husband and wife in another room, that's uh, nine and six, uh, that's 15 and two, 17. So we have over 32 persons in a yard that has only six box rooms. One, two kitchens uh, were uh, used, and then one outhouse, uh, almost, that, that we use. As you know, for the bathroom. And then at that yard was a waterway. When it would rain, the, the water would come through uh, through a dance hall, which is right next door to us, and through the dance hall and right into our yard. So well, our yard used to be completely flooded when, when it rained. I'm sure the, all of Jamaica knows about Arrows Bambulon, Sturgav, that Sturgav's home every weekend for a long, long, long time. So okay. And that dance hall sat right at the edge of my window, my, the windows that we live. And so I could look out and look over into the dance hall. When we come out, when we get out in the, in the morning after a dance, we'd walk across the fence to go look for bottle stopper or money or cigarette or whatever it is that's out there. You know, so as kids, that's where I grew up. I grew up in a, in a place where big families, not everybody in Arakabesa pretty much were related except our family. My family came in from Montego Bay and, and into Arakabesa. But I didn't know how poor I was, I must tell you, until I grew up because my Mom made sure to have us, our meals were always there, whatever it is, you know, whether it's porridge or dumpling fried or whatever it is, we always had something to eat. In my family, there were three sisters, right? Mm -hmm. Myself, that's four, my mom and my dad. 
inside the room, only one bed could hold an, a, a little table, a, a, one bed and a little table. So I, you know, without any doubt, we had to sleep on the ground, pretty much, right? Right. So we slept on the ground on mom and dad on the, on the bed. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and that was in the, what, 1960s and 70s, you said? 60s, 60s and 70s. I watched my mom. People ask me, how oh, come you love me, love my mother so right? Because I love my mom. And she died a couple of years ago. But I watched my mom started her little business in a dust in a, um, <laughs> yeah, So she started selling like combs and brushes and all kind of stuff. And, and we take it down to the hotel and we sat at the hotel, at the back of the hotel for an entire Friday and watch people come in and take stuff from her and trust it. And the next week you pay when, when Fortnite comes and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I watch her our business from that little suitcase we bought two cars and a build a big house in our office so i watch my mom's growth and i watch how she dealt with people you know and i watch how she she was such a member of her church a great member of her church the, the church that she went to so that was pretty much my boyhood i did not pass common entrance exam by the way i thought i did mm-hmm. you know but i did not pass common entrance i went to secondary school i went to um Arakabesa secondary school the first set of grade seven students 1973 to 1978 did not take O levels there i had to leave there and go to another school a private school to take my O levels and pass so that's my days in Arakabesa. i remember my teacher came in grade 10 and said fill out this form i didn't know what the form was about by the time i was done i realized it was an application to teachers college that's, that is sam sharp's teachers college yes because i had taken the common entrance exams and i'd taken the grade nine achievement i didn't pass either of them so when i applied for college i put sam sharp the newest college on the block at the, t- at the time and then monique and then at the bottom the third choice was michael because i thought if i put michael first i wasn't gonna get it anyway so, right because it's <laughs> the michael Exactly, it's me, Michael. And so I got a chance to go to Dump Shop Chess College. That was the day that my life turned around because I always thought I was, you know, I was an academic student, but I felt like my, my time in my life had just turned around because I got a chance to leave Arakabesa, which was not doing well in a community that was a banana community, a banana shutdown, and there there was no opportunity left there. Now I got a chance to go to Montgomery to go to college. That's my boyhood. And uh, what was the contrasting difference? between Arakabesa St. Mary to Sam Sharp in Montego Bay? Well, I saw a lot more opportunities. I considered myself a singer, one. A and singer? A singer, yes. <laughs> Were you influenced by the dancer next door? <laughs> absolutely. I, absolutely. I considered myself a singer at the time. And so when I was in Arakabesa, I was just singing all day long at the side of the streets and stuff. I never played any instrument, but just sing. But then, when I got to Montego Bay, I was able to go to hotels and sing at uh, the Intercontinental Hotel, what? Sir Winston's, and all of these places I was singing. I said, whoa, you know. Oh, you were, you were on the cabaret scene. Cabaret scene, yes. Oh, yes, and then you was, thought you could sing. Yes, yeah, I think I was. I, you know, <laughs> and, and so the one thing that opened up for me was a social night because at night in Arakabesa, after six o'clock, everything closed down. Months ago, nightlife. You know, I could walk on the streets and go look for friends and girls and all of this oh. stuff. It was, it 
was a totally different type of life. Absolutely. Was it yes. long after that you migrated to the United States? So I spent three years at Sam Sharp, made a lot of great friends. I was a track athlete. I was, I sang, there were several things. I was pretty a decent athlete all around, volleyball, soccer, all of those. And then when I left Sam Sharp, I went to work. I met a, a young man, well, then his name is Teacher Cook, the, the previous Gigi, Howard Cook. Oh, Howard, yes. Howard Cook saw me in an elevator one day. I said, this young man, he, he looks like a fine young man. You're tall. You could be a life insurance salesman. But Howard Cook was an educator. I was. I never told. I just I went to internship and I, I, after I left there, caught me in the summer and said, "You look like a nice young man. Come and see me." And I went to see him. The company's name was Alico. He put me paid for my fare to go to Kingston. He paid for my overnight stay at hotel and also the class at Hugh And I went and did my insurance exams and and passed it. And when I came back, he had already left Alico and gone to Kingston to do some some kind of work. He wasn't working at Palico anymore. So I went to work for, for Life of Jamaica instead. I spent a couple of years at Life of Jamaica and then migrated here. Was there much difference with your standard of living when you were when you migrated to the United States? I've read where you had you know, some difficulties when you got there. I remember when I was at Life of Jamaica, dressed up in a tie and everything every day and people respected. Yes, man. You, you had like, on the, the uptown look. Yes, you had the uptown look. You know, when you had a life insurance and your car and everything, you know. And I remember when I announced that I was going to leave because I was going to leave and come to the United States as a non-immigrant. Right. I said I wasn't going to come back, all right. And this guy looked at me and he said, he said, you want to America? Where, where, them, where are you going to become second class citizen? He said, I, I didn't understand what he meant by that. But <laughs> at the time, I, but when I came here, trust me, okay, I knew exactly what he meant, okay? I came here, went to New York, spent about three months there, and then ended up in California. So I was in California for 30 years. My first two years in California were were hell, okay? I was a security a security guard at two different jobs, and I was a cleaning floor in somebody's school at night for two years. And the person who I was cleaning floor for, meaning I was going, I went to the school, and I mopped, and I wiped, and cleaned down, and everything. He gave me my first car and said, you are going to, you know, mop and clean for the next two years and pay for the car. And I also worked in his janitorial door. And then, because I'm bouncing around from job to job, yeah, I remember one day I came home. I, I didn't have enough food because the only money I had was to pay the rent and the light. And the, I didn't have any excess money. But whatever it is that I could squeeze out, I remember buying a whole 50-pound bag of red beans, pinto beans, okay? Mm -hmm. And that was my food that I ate for a long time, for probably two years. Every day, I would go out to work and between jobs, I'd come home, boil the beans, eat, go to sleep, jump up, go to another job, and so forth. And one day, Keisha, one day I came home, put the beans on, I must have been so tired. When I woke up, I thought I was in heaven, okay? Because you know, when you see these things, it's a white smoke and people, it's gone, right? <laughs> I saw this white smoke, so I said, I was in heaven, but I heard this thud, this knocking, and I walked towards the thud, and Keisha, when I looked in my kitchen, my kitchen was completely red, and I opened the door, and fire was coming at me. And I jumped through the door, found that the manager for the building had just was there knocking. And he's the one who woke me up. Not the smoke, not heaven, not the fire. It was the thud on the door that made the 
up and I walked towards the door and the fire came at me once I opened the door. It was really hard. So was it, was it at this time that you decided to change gears? It wasn't that easy to change gears. You know, you, you said to yourself, you need to have something that is different. And I started thinking about, I wanted to become a life insurance salesman again. Mm -hmm. So I had a friend who was working for New York Life and he hired me at New York Life and I spent a couple of times there. And that started to kind of uplift me and mobilize me into a different kind of thing. I got into accounting. I always loved accounting. And I, I left New York Life and went into working for a, a couple of manufacturing companies and did very well in there until I started my own business. So I worked for 10 years here until I, I started my own business. I've never gone back to work for anybody since 1995. So I'll tell you the story. I, I, I left my job, mm -hmm. took my phone money, went into, into my own restaurant business. Didn't have any more money. I, to I spent all the money except $1,000. And when I opened, we were selling donuts and sandwiches and it wasn't making it. And so I, I called up a friend in New York and I said, listen man, go and go talk to Golden Cross. And I don't know if you remember the gentleman died a few years ago. His name is Lowell Arthur. He was the president of Golden Cross. Yes, I, I remember that story. Yes, I flew out with my last $1,000, flew to New York, didn't make an appointment with Lowell. I went into his office and sat down for a long time before he actually came there. His sister gave me a chance to sit down and wait for him. And I sat down and I waited for, for him. And when he came, I told him what my situation is. I have a business. I need to sell patties. I need to sell bread. But I have no money. And he said, okay. And he saw Charlie Ernest in my voice. He said, I am going to give you $5,000 worth of goods. Sell it off in 30 days. And I will see if we can talk from there. And by the time I got back to Los Angeles, the goods came a couple of days later. I'm going to tell you, Keisha. two weeks, that $5,000 worth of goods are gone. In two weeks. So you did it in, he gave you one month. He gave you one oh month. And God. you finished in two weeks. So he helped to build my restaurant. And, and I did, I bought another restaurant and, and ran two restaurants in LA and until I, I, I decided that, you know, it, it's time now to go into a different... But my, uh, I, I ran two very successful restaurants down here and it's all because I give most of that to uh, Lowell Arthur who ran, who was the, who was the owner of, of Golden Cross restaurants in New York on the East Coast. So, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm so happy and, and, and humbled. Whenever I speak of him, I feel really touched and moved. We are speaking with Leo Gillen, founder and the chairman of the Jamaica Diaspora Task Force Action Network. Mr. Gillian, why did you choose this journey of always giving back? And and while you recount why you chose this journey, give us an idea of some of the initiatives and programs that you have spearheaded, some of the current ones that we should know about. Yes. Thank you so much for that opportunity, Kishale. So my journey started some 32 years ago, right? Let's see. I don't. You remember Gilbert? Of course, Gilbert. 1988. <laughs> when Gilbert hit down here in California, one of the things that Air Jamaica did was that they came with an empty plane and said, "Oh no, oh no just pack it up, right?" Yes. Air Jamaica was flying to and fro California at the time, right? Okay. And so they had a plane in California at the time, All right. and they said, "We're not carrying any passengers. We just pack it up." So we just People bring clothing and food and supplies, all kind of stuff, and pack up Air Jamaica to send out to Jamaica. And that's where it started. We had, there was an organization down here that mobilized the community. 
and including me that because that was my first opportunity to go try to give back to Jamaica. And so I became a member of that organization. It's called Jamaica Awareness Association of California. Okay. And that organization built it strong, started doing medical missions, education missions, give education, education financial grants. assistance to, to students. So we take students at, at, the grade, at the grade four, grade five, and grade six and prep them for exam and then we take them three or four years into high school. It's been really one of those great opportunities for me to have lived in California to be a part of that organization. Right. So over the years, I have become familiar with the movement, the diaspora movement. We were um, invited by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs back in 2004 to come to Jamaica for the diaspora conference. And we came to Jamaica, we made some plans, we put some goals together and we came back to the United States and, and across the world, we started the movement of diaspora engagement. That's why whatever persons can do to make Jamaica better, that's what we came back for. When we first started, the word diaspora didn't even mean anything to anybody when we came back. They didn't understand what, what is diaspora, you know, and you know, who's that, that, that kind of stuff. And I remember back in the days when news reporters would, in Jamaica would write a diaspora talk shop, you know, and I know how much I was doing with my community and in Jamaica. And when I heard the, the, the term talk shop, it hurt me. <laughs> in, in 2013, I came to the conference in Mumbai, and I said in one of my speeches, a couple of things that I want to accomplish. One, I want to kill the term, the phrase talk shop. And I also want to mobilize as many Jamaicans as we can for the betterment of our country. Those are the two things that I said I wanted to accomplish. I think we have done that. I have done that. And it's not my, me alone. I didn't do this by myself. There are so many other people out there. But they believed in what I was saying and they came with me. And so between 2013 and 2017, you saw the development of the Jamaica Diaspora Education Task Force. Within one year after the task force was born, we had had a relationship with the USAID and also with the Jamaica Teachers Association, the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Education. And I see National oh, Education that. Trust as well. Trust, absolutely. The, the trust was born when we were there. We helped, we helped to get it up and going. And so we, we developed the relationship. That key, that was very, very key. Of the teachers' association because they're still there with us. They're still there with us every day. And so, in the first year, the USAID saw what we were doing as an education task force and invited us to their office. And they gave us a grant of two hundred and seventy-five thousand US dollars to run a five-week camp. And we collaborated with several other organizations in the United States and bring dental and medical for that five week. We got buses from all across Jamaica and to bring students to Damshaw Jeff College to Case and another college. We've done so many things. Let me, let me give you some ideas. We started in 2014 a program where we bring teachers from Jamaica to California to Loma Linda University to teach them how to use iPads and devices to teach their students in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. We graduated about 250 teachers from that program. We, we, I just told you about the, the camp, some of us that ran for five weeks where we brought over 300 students, 400 students together to teach them because they were learning and they were learning at the grade one level while they were in grade grade four. So we brought their reading up to one, three levels. What you're talking about, in 2013, we started what is called Diaspora Day of Service, which is the day following the Diaspora Conference. We would bring the persons who are already in Jamaica and ask them to engage in various activities across the island and get them engaged in you know, whatever painting, teaching, uh, reading, whatever it is. That 
grew out where we started giving, in 2017, we had 30 education programs where we did professional development. In, in 2019, it was 52 programs. So that was over two or three day period. So that was the DDoS, which is the Diaspora Day of Service, is connected with the conference. But we do work continually throughout the year, right? The, the task force started with the education task force, then they came the technology task force and the entrepreneurship task force, then the crime task force, and also the immigration task force. All of those developed in 2015 and 2017, and they're still running under under the umbrella of Jamaica Diaspora Task Force Action Network, where we have over uh, 12 task forces working in 15 different sectors. So we do a lot of work. Every week, we have training, jaminars, we call them, what you call ribbit webinars. We have jaminars. Okay. Yes, jaminars, where we teach teachers, professional development educators, to nurses, to police officers, if they are available. And so, and that happens every week. We do all different types. The Early Childhood Commission, for example, right last month, we did a conference with the Early Childhood Commission. The Early Childhood Commission asked us to put it on our platform. They generally see like 1,500 each year when they had their conference. Well, we had registration of over 15,000 teachers that, that came on the platform to learn what brought to the table. And we love the con- collaboration between us and the Early Childhood Commission. And up to today, we're still working on the program now to do one-on-ones on signing on, logging in, because a lot of parents have problems, each other problems, logging into a computer. We have one-on-one on Zoom versus don't know how to hands up or to mute and so forth. We're doing teaching in those kind of things. So we're building capacity in a whole different way to make sure that everybody is ready for post-pandemic issues. So we're constantly doing and giving back to our country in ways that people don't think. Because once upon a time, persons used to think that we could all we needed to do is to raise funds and then we go back home once a year and, and we spend the funds in whatever. That's not what we are about. What we're, uh, That's continuous. But what we are about is to be continually engaging with Jamaica, continually finding the gap, continually looking at challenges and saying, how can we empower professionals to be better at what they're doing? And so that's how we engage Jamaica. And based on all the information that you're giving me, which is, I'm sure, just a tip of what it is that you're doing, you seem very, very passionate about education. First of all, I'm a teacher first, right? Two, I I spent a lot of years leading the Jamaica Diaspora Education Task Force. And so during the pandemic in these past 18 months, we have only been able to build on a, a structure that is educating. So which, if it's nurses, we educate because that's the only way we can do virtual right now, right? Right. We have, we have also collaborated with the Ministry of National Security, also with Clinton Foundation, to raise funds of over $14,000 last August to, to bags and school supplies and so forth. But we try not to make money the priority in when we give back, because some people are pushed back a lot right now these days about giving back. And we have a lot of persons who come from Jamaica and have upgraded themselves into being doctors and PhDs and so forth. And that you know, if I bring back $1,500 to Jamaica to go school, one class of anger management, one class of trauma care or self-care takes care of that $1,500. So if we have four persons who are professional and experts in their field giving back an hour or two per week, that's a lot of money. And so we feel that people are going to continue to give back by raising funds. They spend time and go do their thing in raising funds and then go back to Jamaica. But we feel that from the task force, we think that this has to be a continual, sustainable approach to development for us to make, make the impact that we want to make. Right, and looking at your, your bio, which is quite extensive, we see that apart from 
the Jamaica Darfur Education Task Force. You're also the founder and past chairman of the Sam Sharp Teachers College Past Student Association and the current board member of the Sam Sharp Teachers College Foundation, which is responsible for raising funds for the college. And yes. with all of what's going on in the diaspora, you still conduct educational camps and medical missions for the communities yes. of Granville and Tucker. Yes, it is It is absolutely my pleasure. Let me tell you, I, I have a job. I'm an all-state agent, right? I own an all-state agency. No Many persons don't know that. I'm in insurance business. Right, because um, we mentioned that earlier. Mostly, yeah, they know mostly that I'm engaged with the diaspora in doing a lot of the work. So I spend two-thirds of my day, of my working day, doing diaspora thing. I, I started the Samshaw Passing Association back in 2004, and we built three different chapters, one in Jamaica, one in Florida, and one in New York, and they're doing great work. They're a brand new chairman there, but I sit now on the foundation of the college. She's at in different capacity, right? But there's another chairman for the passing association, and each of those chapters has their president, and so they do work. But that's on things like putting a Rockabessa reunion together. I, I do a lot of a lot of things in engaging people, building communities, and so just to make sure that persons are continually engaged because we have so much resources here. Not that we're going to take our entire pay, but we have a lot of resources that we can apply to the needs, the actual needs of our country. And all we have to do is to make persons aware that these needs exist and that they can become a part of giving it back. Well, that is that is very good, though. But let, let's look at this now. How do you engage, maintain, and manage such a vast network of persons uh, to collectively contribute to your philanthropic efforts? And at the same time, as you mentioned, you are part of all states. How, with so much demand on your time, how do you maintain a balance in your professional <laughs> And personal life. First of all, I'll tell everybody anything that you do in your life, if it's not fun, don't do it. That's what I'd say to anybody. Uh, and let me correct some numbers here because they've been updated since the last time you saw my resume, right? Okay. The first time we sent out for uh, when we started the Jamaica Diaspora Task Force Action Network with 13, 12 task forces and 15 sectors. We first I sent out invitation for person to join the task forces, and we got 420 persons within about three days. 420 diaspora members signed up and want to give their contribution JD Tech. All right, and so over the past two years, because we are coming into our second year in the formation of JD Tech. Remember, task forces have been there, but we put together, they all come together in 2019. Today, when I check the stats, we have 1,500 Jamaicans from across 36 countries, 36 countries across the world. Many of those countries in Africa and in the Middle East, many, many of those countries in UK and, and uh, sorry, Canada, Australia, and all of the outlying areas. And I look all across the United States, we have 1,500 persons who are willing to engage with Jamaica, right? No, I want persons to understand this, because when I say engage with Jamaica, it's important that we understand understand engagement is twofold. Engagement is the diaspora engaging with Jamaica, engagement with Jamaica engaging with diaspora. So there's two ways, three. So we have a partnership, right? A partnership of Jamaicans in, in, the, in the diaspora partnering with Jamaica for betterment. I do it myself. We have 32 leaders in the diaspora task forces. Each of the task forces have two chairpersons. There's a chair and a vice chair. 
and sometimes they have two vice chair because they, because for example the education that has over 300 persons uh, who are educators who are now a part of the Jamaica Diaspora Education Task Force it needs two vice chairs and so I don't do it myself I am the chairman the overall chairman and I do a lot of guiding and mobilizing and showing bringing passion and showing the guy and showing the work and and you know, being involved in everything. But the one thing the task forces do is to bring leaders out and make sure that they're highlighted. We're bringing new people to the table every day and say, hey, here's, here's this leader that's like, sitting, you know, around their desk and doing their job at their job, but nobody knows about them. We want to make sure that they're highlighted. So we bring them to the task force and highlight them across the world. Everybody knows about them. So that's, you know, we want people who are leaders to lead. And so, so that the job gets easier as we build on the leadership. And the people who are not leaders in the task forces are leaders in their own right. They just have not yet come to the forefront and we will bring them out as time goes by. So it's not just about me doing the work. It's about everybody putting their hands together to make work like What they say in Jamaica, <laughs> more hands make the <laughs> more hands make the work lighter. Okay, okay, okay. Right. I, I hope you don't forget that part and remember you're still Jamaican. I know. You're still Jamaican. You, what you're saying is that you do maintain a balance in your professional life and your personal life. Yes. And you have a network yes. of persons that make the work lighter while yes. you continue to assist Jamaica. Yes. And I also want to do this. We, over the past years, we've collaborated with probably 105, 106 organizations not just in jamaica but across the world right mm -hmm. and they too bring their resources there when we collaborate with the early childhood commission they bring their specialists whether they're technology people or their admin people to the table so that we work together right and so the work is lighter when we work with the ccm the catholic college of mandeville or Myco or money we work with all of the, the community colleges of jamaica and so forth they bring their efforts so we are collaborating they bring their specialists and their experts to bear and we together work it to make the not just the work like that but make the success of the event or the activity that we're doing that's how it happens it's and, not just me and what is happening here is that the jamaica diaspora task force is indeed impacting jamaica and that is what our podcast is about, highlighting the positives of persons in Jamaica and in the diaspora who are inspiring, motivating persons to be positive in Jamaica. So, Mr. Gillen, we want to thank you so much for joining us today on Impacting Jamaica. Thank you so much for sharing the work of the Jamaica Diaspora Task Force, and we hope that you will continue to give back to Jamaica. All right, no, no hoping. We are doing it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're uh, most... Thank you so much, Keisha. It's been a pleasure spending time with you. I have no no problem talking about the things that we do, and I just want to say thanks to all the leaders in the task forces, all the persons and the, the organizations and the, the, the partners that we've worked with over the years. Thank you for making the Jamaica Diaspora Task Force Action Network what it is today will be better. Thank you so much. Impacting Jamaica is powered by the Philip and Christine Gore Family Foundation. If you or anyone you know is involved with projects and activities that excite, motivate and encourage, send us an email at impactingjamaica at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Do join us again for another in the series on Google Podcast, Audible, Spotify, Podcast Addict and Stitcher. You can also visit us at impactingjamaica.com.